curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Life. After 11 o'clock this evening, a fresh outsider tale with Jared Hindmarsh, another really famous New Zealand name, although you may not know a lot about the guy. The Mackenzie country is named after him. A sheep rustler. Yeah, an area named after an outlaw, basically. But there's, oh, there's a heart-rending story in there. This man and his dog. Oh, I even had a little tear when Jared was regaling the story this week and we're putting it together. And not a bad song, actually, for um, Mackenzie. Well, we've got a coot doing a song at the end of the piece. It's very lovely. You know, sometimes those things can be a bit uh, clumsy, ham-fisted, clunky. Nah, it's just a lovely thing. I'll, I haven't got time to give it justice here. It'll be at the end of Outsiders, and I'll tell you who it is and everything at the end of that. Or you can just have a listen on uh, the archive. It'll be going in there, the... Uh, Outsiders Archive, or you can listen on the podcast. That's the marketing department at me coming out. Alrighty, folks. Uh, the amazing feat of migration, Polynesian migration. We're looking at a fabulous new book about it. It's called Pathway of the Birds. Uh, that'll be later this hour, but next up, Divig. Going nuts. Everything America. Life the universe and everything in between graham hill's weekend variety wireless on radio live john DeVig's letter from america oh say can you see oh yeah right yeah uh, oh say oh say lovely american tune to start off your national anthem yeah no yeah. sorry john <laughs> what are you doing i'm down here <laughs> Why are you down there? Taking a knee, brother. Taking a knee. Yeah, we're protesting. I'm taking a it. knee for Nike. <laughs> what do you make of that? Oh, I looked at the ad. I like the ad. Right. I think it's a nice ad. Uh, I'm always suspicious of companies that... Oh, it's, it's plainly for on. money. Yeah. It's commercial. It's yeah. not because they got any ideals yeah, about it. Was, it, it wasn't like and we, we feel strongly about this. It no. Sitting around in a boardroom thinking, uh, we'll we'll get on board with And they did. Cat. I mean, their, yeah. their sales went up 31% online. Did they? Because, they, you know, millennials go for that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was a commercial decision. Yeah. Let's not get all teary-eyed about it. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the millennials will love Nike and just until for another week until they find out about the sweatshops and then it'll be back to normal. Yeah, yeah, we'll get back after it. All right. Um, what do you want to re revisit from last week? Well, you know, goddamn flag, you know, the movie, The First Man, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it was bothering me all week, you know. So I went back and I listened to uh, John F. Kennedy talk about why we were going to the moon. And great speech. Not because it's easy. Hey. But because it's hard. hard. And, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, the ingenuity, the time, the, the sweat, the muscle. Yeah. And the fact that he said, you know, this is in 1962 or so, whatever he said when he made the speech. Sure wasn't 64 anyway. No, it wasn't 64. We know that. But, you know, by the end of the decade, you know, we're, yeah. we're going to do it. And I thought, well, God damn it, that was the whole point, that it was an American thing. And he actually said in the speech, we're doing it because we're going to beat the Ruskies. Yeah. We're going to beat them. We're going to win. We're going to get there first. And yeah. that was the whole point. So if that's the whole point of the goddamn thing, 
Why would you make a movie and not say show the guy planting the American flag on it? I yeah, mean, it, just it does kind of take away <laughs> a lot of the motivation behind doing the whole thing. There's your story. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I so I, they're telling a lie, really, aren't well, they? Well, I read the director's, you know, vision of it. He wanted to do the inner Pathetic turmoil excuse. and <laughs> you know, whatever. But anyway, so yeah, okay. it was quite interesting that it lock bothered. him up, lock <laughs> him up, lock him up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Far out. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like making a fuss about something well, uh, when it doesn't need to be. No. Yeah. No. But maybe they did it on purpose. Yeah. Got a lot of talk about it. Oh, <laughs> I feel so bad that we went to the moon and put our flag up there. Oh, sorry, world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Far out. <clears throat> Ab, thank you, United States of America and your flag for bailing our asses out from the Japanese invasion. Thank there you. you. Go. Thank there you, you very, very much. Yeah, we were here. Yeah, yeah. you were. Yeah. You weren't here for oil, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, what's pathetic? Oh, this is, you know, this uh, actor, Jeffrey Owens. You know, he used to be on uh, the Bill Cosby show for about oh, seven Oh, yeah, yeah, seven, he was eight, the eight. middle kid. Yeah. No, no, he was a doctor. He, he married one of the older daughters. and then No, the was, dad was the doctor. Yeah, but no, this guy was also a doctor. Oh. Yeah. But anyway, black not, guy. Not in the Cosby show he wasn't. He yeah, was he a was. Kid. Yeah, no, he wasn't the kid. He was oh. not the kid. That's not the guy. See, you know, you, what are you trying to do? You're trying to school me? You know, I'm coming from the land of the home of the free, the brave, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You know, no, I, I shouldn't. Yeah, have. I, I made an assumption <laughs> when I saw the guy's face, and it wasn't and the moved kid. Moved on. Yeah, anyway, sorry, yeah. No, he was. On. He was the doctor. But anyway, he was. You know, had a seven or eight year gig on it, and then, um, like everything else, you know, as actors, I mean, gigs don't last forever, and then you uh. got to do something else. So here's a guy. He's 57 years old, and he's been on the Blacklist. He's been on Elementary, the Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he's been on a lot of different shows. But once again, they're guest roles. So he's bagging groceries at Trader Joe's, and some woman takes a picture of him and then flashes it, you know, goes to all the media places, and Fox News runs a thing and job shames the guy. Why? Because they're assholes, that's why. Like, it's bad because, you know, all they go, oh, here's a guy that's fallen down on hard times. He used to be a big shot actor. Now look what he's doing here, working in a grocery store. Making an honest Making living. Making an awesome. <laughs> Helping <a> people. <laughs> Making a buck. Yeah. You know? And I listened to the guy, Jeffrey Owens, this actor, you know, in his interview, because he, you know, got onto a lot of interview shows. And a lot of actors came to his defense because every actor has done stupid jobs or whatever jobs, you know, in between. Two-thirds of the actors in L.A. are waiting tables. Yeah. You know, and this guy said, you know, he said the, the funny thing about it was, you know, acting is a stressful position because, you know, you got you to hustle and make the make the work and all this kind of stuff. He said the work at Trader Joe's is very therapeutic. Yeah. He enjoys it. He's talking to the public and, it, you know, it's just work. People it, appreciate the service. Yeah. So I, I think that was just a, a little pathetic moment in American yeah. this week. Yeah, that, that we really that. is. That really is. I got... um kind of angry actually at a drink driving um one of those advertisements public advisory advertisements that say that drinking and driving is not a good idea um especially if you're young because you might end up losing your license and you end up working at mcdonald's and it had these other people (laughs) driving through mcdonald's and the guy that was formerly in their car having fun was now serving them at mcdonald's and it was like ha ha uh, yeah I make a point. Yeah. I don't, I don't. Not often do I make a point of something. I, it's just act naturally. Yeah. But when I go through McDonald's, I just try and be extra grateful 
for the service, especially if it's good. Yeah. I say thank you, fabulous, yeah. all really good, yeah. because it's one of these things that's become a, a, stigma. a stigma and from doing an honest day's work yeah and it's a job what that, an appalling state the, uh, uh, to be uh, in when uh, that is the case exactly and mcdonald's is one of those places where a lot of kids you know young kids get their first job opportunity yeah because they, they hire young kids to you know hustle burgers yeah i mean you know i worked in a burger joint and it you know i've worked it, in a burger joint it ain't that bad i've dug graves <laughs> well i haven't done that i begged i'd be I haven't begged either. Yeah. yeah. I haven't got to that point. Not a great feeling. No. No. Not it wasn't all. a full-time job. I'm not... I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not uh, uh, underestimating uh, how awful it would be to be a full-time beggar, but I, I had to just for a little bit of money. Well, there you go. Whatever you got to do. To get me out of a train station in Paris. Okay. Okay. Well, that's not... You know, that's a specific reason. That is a specific reason. <laughs> okay. Uh, buttons. Uh, just to let you know, if, mm -hmm. you're, if you're in New York City and you're trying to go off across a crosswalk... Don't hit the button more than once because there's over a thousand buttons on the crosswalks and only about a hundred of them work. The other ones don't actually work. What's a crosswalk in your uh, language? You know, pedestrian crossing. Oh, okay. You know, we call it a crosswalk. Yep. And what the, you know, because of uh, digital age and, and you know, they, they got all this now stuff where they the lights do the stuff for you. Yeah. And, and, but they leave the buttons there to give people something to do. They don't actually work. Oh, people like to <laughs> people press it, like to press think it, that they they're, they're doing have it. some control over their life. Yeah. Now the other button that doesn't work in America is the is the elevator where you push the button to go down to close the doors. Yeah. It doesn't work because in 1990 they passed a, there was a, a congressional law that was passed that the doors have to stay open for a certain length of time for disability people. Oh. So no matter how many times you push the button, it's going to stay open. I don't know what it is, 90 seconds or whatever it is. It's going to stay open really? for that long. So you can push the button all you want, and it ain't closing. But with disability people, if they it opens, it might take them just a little bit longer to get in. Yeah. 90 seconds. I don't know. I don't know what. the threshold. And then they can hold the door open, can't they? You can hold the door open, but no matter how many times you push to close it, right. it ain't closing. All right. And the third button that doesn't work at most places in America is the thermostat in hotels. Most of them are false or phony. They're just put on the wall, yeah. and you dial them, and you feel better that you think. But the hotel controls what the temperature is going to be. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think I know one more button in America that doesn't work. What's that? It's the red one that says launch in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> that's just well, got a little. Let's pray it doesn't. <laughs> that's, it's just to make people feel as though they've got something to do. Yeah. But you know what? And people always say it's a red button. It's actually not a button. It's oh. a it's a key. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Just a don't tell <laughs> rain Donald. On your don't tell Donald. He's absolutely <laughs> he convinced it's the you red, know, you red know, button. You, you know what the button he pushes in his office? I should go and work for the White House. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it'd be good. Anyway, you, no, carry on. Yeah. Oh, uh, he pushes a button, a red button, or some kind of button. And he gets a Coke. Really? <laughs> That's his Coke button. I want a. He Coca drinks about eight cans of Coke a day. He drinks a lot of Coke. God bless America. God bless America. You got it. All right. Trump's phony world. That is just interesting. You know, tr everything with Trump is a con. You know, I mean, he was at a, a rally in uh, Billings, Montana. And I've got to put my hand up. I've been to Billings. You know, I've been all over Montana. Great state in the summer. Bit rough in the wintertime. Bit rough. Big sky country. But he's in Billings, Montana. And there's a high school kid in a plaid shirt that's sitting right behind him. And he's kind of making faces and kind of not, not agreeing with everything that Donald is saying. And all of a sudden, some woman comes in and takes his place. 
And then they put up two more women to take the place of his friends. And then afterwards, the guy said that the FBI escorted him to a room and held him for about 10 minutes, wanted to see his ID, and then asked him to leave and not come back. Really? Yeah. You know, and it's just, you know, it's like, you know, Donald's, you know, you know, and everybody goes, oh, everybody loves Donald. Look at that. You know, and it's, they're all plants. They're all people that, you know, and the guy and the kid said when he got there, he did. He just went because he, which is fair enough. He wanted to see the president of the United States. So he mm -hmm. just goes and he got stuck there. And he said, oh, he wanted to be there, didn't he? Not, right not, not right behind. No, he, oh, didn't, he, really? didn't, he didn't realize that was going to happen. And he said, they said, you know, you have to be over, you know, enthusiastic and wear the hat. And he goes, I'm not wearing a hat, no. you know, because he doesn't agree with everything that Trump says. But it's such a fraud. It's like when, Don, when Trump um, announced his presidency, he hired 200 actors to be in that lobby there cheering him. And you got to you got to that should have been your first clue, folks. Yeah. That should have been your first clue. <laughs> well, the hotel itself. Yeah. First time it's been announced on the move, on an escalator, right? Eh? Yeah, coming down, yeah. you know, God. Far out. <laughs> okay, um, now the rule of rule law. Rule of law. And, you know, this is an example of why Trump is, is you know, a bad person, why he's, 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 not a, he's not a good American. You know, he doesn't believe in the rule of law. You know, I, I told you about a couple weeks ago that they, these two congressmen were um, being investigated, you know, two Republican congressmen, mm -hmm. one for embezzlement of money to over $250,000, mm -hmm. and the other guy for inside trader trading on stock exchange. So legitimate, you know, I mean, they got them nailed. Both, both of them are going to go down. And Trump this week text, you know, tweeted, first of all, he lied. He said that the investigation of these two people started in, in the Obama administration. And it's, that's just a lie, folks. I mean, it, they started last year under Trump's administration. Obama had nothing to do with it. And once again, Trump just lies like a son of a bitch, man. He lies. But anyway, the main article, the main point of the tweet was he, 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 he blasted his attorney general for allowing the Department of Justice and the FBI to do their jobs and charge these people be, simply because they were Republicans and there was an election coming up. So he wants to use the Department of Justice as his personal tool to not do their job when it involves his party. Mm. That's that is how do you justify that you people that support him how do you justify that another example this week somebody wrote an anonymous op-ed in the new york times and said that trump was crazy that people take papers off his desk that, that so they he won't sign them that the, the guy that the, the headline of the op-ed piece was i am part of the resistance inside the white house and this is a high level senior official and now trump wants the Department of Justice, Jeff Sessions, is attorney general to investigate this, investigate this and find out who this guy is and turn him over to the government? What the hell? Where the hell are we talking about, folks? Are we talking about Russia? Are we talking about communist China? Nauru. Nauru? Are we talking about? What are we talking about, folks? It's not against the law to voice your opinion that you think Trump is an asshole. It's not against the law. It's called freedom of speech. First Amendment, freedom of the press, First Amendment. Come on, folks. How do you justify that? How do you justify this son of a bitch using the Department of the Government of the United States to go after his political enemies? That is not America. It's Bob Woodward, isn't it? <laughs>
No, no, he's coming next. I mean, <laughs> well, he's done a longer one in a book. He's done the book, Fear. And boy, I tell you, there's been three books put out, Fire and Fury yeah. by Michael Wolf, who was, you know, they, you could question his credentials. Yeah, he might have made some stuff up. Yeah, Unhinged by um, Omarosa, who mm. was inside the White House, and yep. she's got an agenda. Bob Woodward, who is a twice Pulitzer Prize winner who took down Nixon and all the president's men. I mean, he's written, you know, for 40 years. He's yeah. covered the presidency. He is solid gold when it comes to a reputation of being a, a, a classy reporter. And he's come out, the book will come out September 11th. I don't know if that's a, you know, they chose that date on purpose. That's, you know, our anniversary of the... The publishers nine, might have. Yeah, yeah. 911. And uh, it's scathing. It's scathing, this book. I mean, it's just the inside story of how reckless and how irresponsible and how people are running around trying to cover up Trump's, you know, it, I mean, you know, like he wants to go around and assassinate... Well, it meshes with the letter. It could have been written by the same person. This it, is what I'm saying. Well, it could, you know. They, they don't know. That's the biggest game in town now. Who wrote the letter? Who yeah. wrote the op-ed? I'm just sorry, sorry, it's Bob Woodward. You know, but you gotta, you know, I mean, this is a sad state of affairs when people inside your own organization are writing anonymous op-eds about how paranoid how petty you are how mm. what lack of leadership there is well, everybody's running around scurrying to like you know taking papers off his desk because they know he'll forget about them he won't remember oh was there a paper there that I was supposed to sign yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know that's pathetic well it's all they've taken their cue from my strategy from the the, the red launch button <laughs> yeah there you go it's a little wire and it's just wire it up so it's got a light on it maybe it blinks <laughs> That, that's, Makes a noise. Keep us safe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Obama was uh, more forward. He's been, you know, pretty... Um, oh, reticent. Yeah, reticent about really saying much. Yeah. And well, I, I that, thought that, that was uh, class. But this week, he got a little bit more animated, didn't not, he? Yeah, yeah, this week... Um, the gloves are off. It's it's Obama and Trump fighting for the soul of America. I mean, you know, two different ideologies. Uh, Obama, you know, because presidents, past presidents don't criticize sitting presidents. It's just something we don't do. George Bush never said a word about Obama. You just sit back and that's the way it is. But because of these unusual times, Barack is going to be on the campaign trail. we got 60 days, a little less than 60 days to the midterm elections, which means that all 435 seats in the House of Representatives representatives are up for re-election and 30 seats in the senate are up for re-election so you've got a hugely important midterm election this time around Every, you know i mean the people that hate trump are hoping that the democrats can take the house and we can finally have some reasonable investigations into this jerk that the republicans have been stalling uh, if they take the Senate, then he's in real trouble. But they're hoping they, you know, that'd be that's a real dicey one there. But they're hoping that the Democrats can take the Senate or the, the House of Representatives. Um, and Barack came out. Yeah. And he really went after Trump. And he, and he you know, the, uh, yesterday uh, and then uh, today, um, American time. He, it wasn't so much scathing as he actually just said some things like this isn't normal. Yeah, this is not normal. And we're, we're, our our. Democracy is being attacked. Our institutions are being attacked. The GOP, you know, used to, uh, the grand old party, the Republicans used to fight against communism. Now all of a sudden he said, you know, they're cozying up to a guy that was a former head of the KGB, blah, blah, blah. All these things that Trump is, you know, proclamating. Oh. And, yeah, so he came out. And it's a double-edged sword. You know, it's a double-edged sword because now 
what this will do, this will give Trump the enemy he needs. And Trump always needs somebody to rail against. He had Hillary Clinton, he, and then after Clinton you know, lost, then he went after the newspapers, went after the press. And then he went after every person that he'd previously employed after but, they got the sack. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he just he needs an enemy. He that's 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 a fuel for him. So now Barack is out there. So, and you know, remember Trump was the one that, you know, really pushed the birther, you know, the, yeah. that he wasn't born in America conspiracy all these years. So, it'll be very interesting because the gloves are off now. But that Bertha thing is just so insane because oh, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. One because his mother's an American citizen. Yeah, it's, it's just completely meaningless. Yeah. No, the whole, I mean, John McCain was born in the Panama Canal. Yeah. Zone. Yeah. And if, as we've mentioned <laughs> Mitt before, Romney was Mitt Romney's born dad, in Mexico. <laughs> Mitt Romney's dad was born in Mexico and he yeah. ran in 68. Yeah. Yeah. He was governor of um, uh, Minnesota. Yeah. So yeah, no, it didn't. But uh, no, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see these two guys go head to head. And you know, I mean, you know, Trump will come up with some you know stupid wacky name for him. I'm sure. (laughs) All right, John. uh, That it for you? Yep, that's it for me, folks. No worries. Uh, Coming up next, the story of the Polynesian voyages. There's this book that's come out. This is, I'll tell you about this because it's very un-American, John. This might be very New Zealandy. <laughs> New go. Zealandy. Nothing wrong with that. A beautiful book. It's called Pathway of the Birds, and yeah. it's okay. oh, the science, botany, archaeology, history, ling- linguistics. It's stunning about how Polynesians moved around yeah. uh, the planet, and it's a vast area, and you know you can miss an island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whoops, and the navigation stories in it. It's just a gorgeous book. The author, Andrew Crow. Um, I asked the publisher, can I speak with him? And he said, and they said, oh, I'm really sorry. He doesn't want to. <laughs> just doesn't like doing interviews. He's a bit shy. Well, there you go. Isn't that lovely? And there you go, yeah. Some people, and some people are that way. They say, let my work speak for itself. Yeah, yeah. You know. And they just didn't like doing, didn't like, don't well, like doing interviews. I can certainly understand that. I can understand it too. And it matters not a jot because the book is absolutely stunning. And we have a Polynesian voyaging um, expert, uh, <laughs> archaeologist, geneticist, Lisa Matasu Smith. She'll be up next, basically giving the book a review. Ah, super. You're tuned in. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. A lovely new book has appeared in bookshops. It's a lot to do with New Zealand. It's called Pathway of the Birds. Perhaps Andrew Crow is a familiar name. His guides to things about New Zealand wildlife. I've worn out one of his insect books. I go to his stuff probably on a more regular basis than anything else for New Zealand natural history. And so I was interested. Andrew Crow, goodness me. He's done a big fat book this time called Pathway of the Birds. The Voyaging Achievements of Maori and Their Polynesian Ancestors. So I thought I'd give him a call and we'd have a big long chat about the book. He doesn't want to talk on the radio because he's too shy. And I appreciate that actually. I like a shy person. He's straight up about it. But we're not short of people 
they have expertise in this area of study anyway. And one from Otago University, famously with the genetic studies of Polynesian voyaging, is Lisa Matasu smith So I thought I'd wheel you out. Um, because, <laughs> I'm not shy, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because this is right up your alley. And mm. essentially, this is going to be a book review, because when I had a look through it, just a cursory glance, I was impressed with how many different disciplines, mm. scientific disciplines, are all threaded together in one book yeah absolutely and 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 it's a beautiful book it's my first flick through was wow what an impressive collection of amazing maps and photographs and historic images it's beautiful it's a beautiful book that was my first my first response (laughs) all right it's surely got to be doesn't it the craziest migration story in all of human history am i talking this up too much I don't know that I would label it the craziest migration story. Certainly, you know, I've said many times it's one of, one of, if not the most impressive migration stories when you consider the distances that were covered and, and the timing and so forth. Um, it is one of the great achievements of, of human history, I would say. Mm. And ocean-going vessels when... Mm. Everybody else, as far as I know, was just inching scaredy cats along the coast. (laughs) Yeah. We know what's written. Um, There are suggestions that people may have been making voyages, but we found no evidence of similar kinds of voyages at anywhere near the time that Polynesian settlement, let alone the settlement of the Western Pacific, was occurring. A pretty amazing feat requiring unbelievable skill and knowledge and and guts, one might say. Yeah. Um, Your impressions of the book, the research that's gone into it, because it's got to be rigorous, this sort of thing, doesn't mm, it? I have to say that what Andrew's done is really impressive, particularly from somebody who claims to not be an academic. It's a beautifully researched, um, very in-depth, and certainly I really appreciate the referencing that's evidence of his research. He's tackled an incredible range of subjects. His linguistic knowledge is truly impressive. Mm. But, you know, the natural history stuff is what we might um, expect of him, and his knowledge of that is very, very clear. Yeah, I was, I was, I was very, very impressed with, um, with the scientific rigor, with the range of topics that he has clearly investigated, and, and he's really done his research it's, and, and put together, as I say, a beautiful, beautiful book. You know, in reading through, it was following up on a number of things that it was like, wow, I, I hadn't heard of that, you know, and so I'm, I've got a list of papers to track down as a result of reading it. It's, um, so, I mean, I think the thing that's really lovely about it, everybody that I've kind of shown it to as I, when I received it was going, wow, look at this, you know, it's, it's a beautiful book for the layperson, but also for scholars and researchers working in the area. He's really, I mean, I think Pat Kirch says it beautifully. It's a, it's a masterful synthesis of Polynesian voyaging and Polynesian prehistory. From the thought years and years ago that it must have just been accidental, randomly being blown, surviving as castaways, to the other end that it was all very purposeful, there must have been untold tragedy left unknown over the years of people that didn't make it to a place that they wanted to go to. 
that happens in everything. Of course, yeah. every voyage, you know, when you get in your car, you hope you're going to make it to your destination, and inevitably some people don't. We would have to accept that and expect that there were voyages that were unsuccessful, that, that even with all of the best planning and, and skill and everything else, you know, Mother Nature can always throw something at you that, that you're unprepared for and unable to to overcome. Was that the majority of voyages? I think, you know, which was the perspective that was often taught and many people thought about jump in a canoe, push off the shores and hope to find land going in in no particular direction yeah. other than where, you know, the wind takes you. That kind of a strategy without the knowledge and the skill and the planning would have required a massive population, one would imagine, to account for the speed at which Polynesian expansion occurred and the growth of those successful settlements. Just looking at it demographically, it has to have required a significant proportion of the voyages attempted would have been successful. But it also, I think, one of the important criteria there is that your voyages of exploration are different from your voyages of colonization. So you have your explorers, generally men probably, um, certainly from what, what all of the oral traditions uh, suggest, who were the skilled navigators and explorers who actually did that exploration. And then the concept of return voyaging, then they would return home and take their colonists, you know, all of their plants and their animals and the things that they needed to establish a settlement on an island that somebody already knew where it was. They'd gone out, they'd done the discovery. They knew what resources were there or were not there. And then when they went back home, then they could prepare and take the appropriate people and resources and things with them and, and sail to a known location. No one found New Zealand and stayed until, as far as human history goes, yesterday, um, at about I don't know, 700, 800 years ago. But the idea of navigating to a place like New Zealand, some elements of chance would have to be there, wouldn't they? I'm not diminishing the achievements in the slightest, but unless you know there is a land out there, you have to go and find it first, don't you, in order to navigate there? Or is there something secret going on? there is a safety element in sailing towards the east and that you you're, you can always get back home, that you've got your trade winds and, and things. You've got a reliable and predictable sailing environment Right. when you're basically sailing along. If you look at the, the map of the Pacific, you see that the islands, you know, there's always another island, which is why we say, they, you know, why would they have stopped sailing when they got to Easter Island? Because there were no signs saying, you know, last island, no. you know, <laughs> for however long. They would have been expecting that there was another island, so they would have continued until they couldn't sail any further. Sailing north and south is more difficult, is more unpredictable. And Jeff Irwin has always argued that people took that eastwardly route first and north and south was later. But of course, we've got the dates of Hawaii probably being settled before Rapa Nui and Aotearoa. But it wasn't just guessing. There were all kinds, of, and this is something that, that Andrew Crowe covers really beautifully in his book, that the pathway of the birds. You've got these amazing migrations, bird migrations, and, and Pacific peoples were very tied into their environment, and they knew they would have recognized the seasonality of, of bird migrations. And the long-tailed cuckoo coming down from the tropical Pacific you know, down to New Zealand, they would have not expected that the birds were just flying off to to nothingness, yeah. you know, they, that they would have been going and that they return every year, you know. So, so they would have known that there was something in that direction. 
Mm. They also, you know, we've got volcanic eruptions. You've got Taupo. You've got the Kermadex going. Pacific people are going to recognize those indicators as, gee, there's land down there in that right. in that direction. So I think there were all kinds of natural potential signs that island-based people and navigators would have been pretty aware of and, and tied into that would indicate that there was there was something down to the south. And in that systematic way of voyaging out for a particular direction or for a particular period of time, don't find anything, you go home, try the next time, slightly further or a slightly different direction, you know, systematic kind of exploration, they would have found it. And, and Aotearoa is pretty big landmass yeah. compared to many of the islands that the voyagers did actually find amongst the Great Blue Ocean. And the fact that Kumara are part of the Polynesian cargo, is that a slam dunk that they made it to South America or did the South Americans beat them halfway for a bit of a baton change? <laughs> Well, uh, it depends on who you speak to. I would say that it's that it's a slam dunk. You know, certainly we have not only the presence of the Kumara by a thousand years or so, is the dated charred remains of Kumara and the, the Cook Islands, but you've also got the linguistic evidence of it being an interaction and some exchange of the tuber <laughs> or the plant. You know, so you know. So the South American, the South American word is similar. Kumar, mm, uh-huh. the Quechuan word, um, from right around the Gulf of Guayaquil, which is actually, if you're going to be voyaging from South America, which we anticipate Polynesians would have hit probably someplace further south in, in central, south-central Chile, you basically get the Pacific Current up to the Gulf of Guayaquil, and then things turn back out, and you can actually start sailing back towards the west, right about the place that linguistically we have the connection for the Kumara, where they're grown and where the, the linguistic um, tie is. How hard is it to find some place that was missed <laughs> I mean, you could end to be island. When you think about how freaking yeah. miserable that can be, yeah. um, that was part of this migration as well. And yeah. you th- you're all the way up to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. That gives you the, the expanse, but that's climatic as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Uh, when you, you know, people are always amazed. When you look at a, at a map and you kind of go, oh, the Pacific and it's a space over there. When you overlay, you know, a map of Europe over a map of Polynesia, which I regularly do when I'm giving public talks, people are blown away, you know. It's mm. like we're talking <laughs> the distances that were covered are vast. And when you actually compare it to land masses that people have a concept of in, you know, European continental headspace, people go, whoa, that's really, really far. And now try it in a boat. Exactly, try it in a boat. And and if you spend any time, you know, gosh, my sailing from from Samoa to Tokelau and, you know, three days sleeping on the deck of a boat and a big boat really makes you impressed with, you know, what people were doing in Awaka, which which was a big boat, but not compared Mm. to, you know, big European freighter. That's a long trip and a rough trip and water breaking over and sloshing around all your, your stuff you're trying to preserve to get there. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> Psychologically, Rarotonga seems really close to New Zealand, but it's miles away. Mm. Our closest Pacific Islands, it just seems to me anyway, it seemed to have far less to do with the migration than the ones far, far, far away. Think about New Caledonia compared with... Tahiti, which is miles away. 
and yet far, far closer to Maori language culture? These are interesting questions in terms of contact. We know from the, you know, that there was contact between New Caledonia and Vanuatu, for example. But I think the distance is certainly when you know you, you get Lapita settlement through New Caledonia, Vanuatu, Samoa, and Tonga, and then things stop. Lapita people didn't go further to actually carry on into the Polynesian Triangle. And, and they stopped for a significant period of time, 1,500, maybe 2,000 years, before we really get that final burst out into Central East Polynesia. Again, you know, archaeologists are always kind of arguing about the dates and things, but 1,500 years, we could say, before they pushed out. And then what caused that final pulse? What was it? What drove that? You know, mm. It doesn't necessarily have to have been any kind of major event, but some colleagues and I have suggested that maybe there was another population movement out, possibly through Micronesia. Uh, we see a, a significant change in the material culture between uh, West Polynesia and East Polynesia, and we see some similarities between East Polynesia and Micronesia. You know, And then the distances that people had to traverse in the island size, of course, also tend to get smaller as you move to Central East Polynesia, with the exception, of course, of, of New Zealand. Mm. So maybe it was either these other people or just that time for that voyaging technology and voyaging knowledge to develop that allowed for those really vast expanses. That, it's that a remaining happen. mystery. It is a remaining mystery, and, you know, and, unless somebody invents a, a really successful time machine it will probably remain a mystery well hang um, on we've got one and you've you've got in a, in a test tube you do so much genetic research what is your genetics tell us yeah. about another wave push a late one well it's not quite a time machine it does give us a link a, a thread that we can travel back through through time um, but of course we don't we only inherit a fraction of DNA um, each generation, so you, you can very quickly start to lose some of those signals. Right. So it's not necessarily going to give us the whole story, but it's certainly giving us a, a part of the story. So, yeah, we've looked at the DNA of, of people. We've looked at the DNA of plants and animals. And so we can accumulate all of that ev evidence and start to see possible connections and, and links um, that may indicate interactions and, and origins. In some cases, there are some patterns, but there are also differences. So each of the different organisms, is, the DNA story is going to tell us a, a potentially different part of the, the bigger story. And trying to tease all of those things, but, you know, put it together, but also tease apart what's going on over time is actually it's, it's exciting. It's lots of fun, um, but it's very complicated. And we're always dealing with relatively small sample sizes so you know trying to figure out what the jigsaw puzzle is really what the what the final picture is when you've only got uh, a, a tiny fraction of the actual pieces um, is always a bit of fun <laughs> yeah linguistics speaks volumes literally mm. um, and I just think of a word like Nico where mm. you've got it's hilarious well it wouldn't have been to the people who uh, who coined the term but almost anywhere and uh, of the Polynesian speaking Eastern Polynesian they'd know what a Nico was without seeing one no coconuts <laughs> yeah <laughs> And, and there are lots of examples of that. The linguistic evidence is really, really interesting. And if it was just one or two things, you can go, well, by chance or, you know, barring. But when you start to see the, the accumulated pattern, and it's the same thing with the DNA, you know, it's like you start to see this accumulation of, of consistent links to particular places that becomes pretty strong evidence. And when you start putting then the linguistic data and the genetic data 
and the archaeological data and looking at the musical instruments and the natural history, you start to say, okay, you know, we, we do see some patterns. Clearly, that's not the whole story. And these other where we don't see patterns are, are maybe giving us some nuances of what might be going on. But um, it's really important. I think this is one of the things that the earlier scholars had an advantage of that they were very broad in their in their reading and their understanding of natural history of social you know we're now becoming such specialists that you're not just a DNA specialist you're a particular kind of DNA just ancient right. DNA specialist or mitochondrial ancient DNA you know? and, yeah. and it's like we have fewer and fewer scholars who have that broad overview of the linguistic and the archaeological and the cultural and social and the natural history that this book that Andrew's written really does give that broad overview, which is really such a valuable a valuable piece of scholarship. And, and the fact that it's it's written by somebody who doesn't have a, have skin in the game in a way, you know, he's not he he hasn't written publications stating that this is my theory and therefore I'm going to support it. He's come at it as a science writer and said, okay, you know. Yeah. Last question: Are there any other enduring mysteries other than the big mysterious stop? Um, I mean, there's lots of little mysteries that I think are all very, very interesting that ultimately kind of paint that big picture. I'm, every study we, we undertake kind of tends to unveil new questions. But, you know, why, why no greenstone? You know, is it, it, you know, from why don't we see greenstone in any, in any central East Polynesian locations? Because you know, it, it wasn't there? Or is it there and they didn't use it? Well, no, it's 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 from here. But if there was interaction between New Zealand and Central East Polynesia, oh, yeah, yeah. it's you know why wasn't it taken back? We yeah, see uh, we it, see basalt. We see you yeah. know we see other resources and greenstone being so beautiful and being so portable, portable, and it's unusual and it's it grabs you know your attention and it's and its significance you know socially and culturally is is a relatively rare commodity. If somebody's going back, they they. I take greenstone every time I go visit my family around the world. You know, it's it's an interesting question that that has been used to argue that oh well then clearly there wasn't two-way voyaging you know back from Aotearoa. You know, I'm not ready to buy that yet, but I think it's a that's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, All right. You know, and yet we have the connection with the Tokikura, the adzes that are from southern Chile, which are made out of green stone of a Polynesian form with a Polynesian name. You know, that that's a you know, there's a lot more work we can do to look in at connections both to South America and along the southern Polynesian connections. I think are are most interesting to mm. investigate. Oh, well, given the chance and the skills, gosh, we can get all over the place, can't we? This is quite amazing. All right. Hey, look, I really appreciate it. Lisa Mattisou-Smith, University of Otago, who does amazing work on archaeological DNA work and with special relation to Polynesian and well Pacific voyaging. So mm. great to have a look at this book by Andrew Crow. Thanks for your thoughts on it and the Polynesian questions and the obviousness of its Polynesian voyaging success of just where people are. So Pathway of the Birds is what it's called. Lisa Madison Smith, thank you very much. The weekend variety wireless. I recall making a promise or at least something that might have sounded like a promise. That Nixon song from the American Poem Songbook, 
Oh, my goodness. There are some uh, travesties of art in there. One of them being the dedication to Richard Nixon. I suppose it sounds worse uh, post-Watergate, doesn't it? Just like, you know, Rolf Harris International Airport at Perth. There's now the um, Rolf Harris Memorial Ditch in Bazendine. Anyway, uh, here it is. As much as we can fit in just heading to the news, Richard Nixon. God, in his infinite wisdom, put Richard Nixon on this earth to bring to us his heritage, one of priceless worth, a courageous leader and a blessed man, surely in God's plan. infinite wisdom put Richard Nixon on this earth to bring to us his heritage one of priceless worth his heritage is from heaven and the magic from above the rapture of music and melody of culture and of love. Yes, God in his infinite wisdom put Richard Nixon on this earth to bring to us his heritage, one of priceless worth. A leader with endless courage, a miracle, you might say. And all who have met Nixon love him so, the genius of his way. God, in his infinite wisdom, put Richard Nixon on this earth to bring to us his heritage, one of priceless worth. God, infinite wisdom put Richard Nixon on this earth to bring to us his heritage one of priceless worth Actually, you know, I still don't think Trump comes close to Nixon as far as odiousness goes. I'll go into detail about that another day because new sport and weather time and the other side of the info burst, a fresh outsider, the story of James McKenzie of the McKenzie country, a beautiful tale.